We're going to do one last teaching in Judges with Gideon. So if you would turn to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7, we'll begin reading in verse 1. It says, Then Jerubal, who was Gideon, and all the people that were with him, rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod, so that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel vaunt themselves against me, saying, Mine own hand has saved me. Now therefore go to, proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. And there returned of the people twenty and two thousand, and there remained ten thousand. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people are yet too many. Bring them down under the water, and I will try them for thee there. And it shall be that of whom I say unto thee, This shall go with thee, the same shall go with thee. And of whomsoever I say unto thee, This shall not go with thee, the same shall not go. So he brought down the people under the water, and the Lord said unto Gideon, Everyone that laps of the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, him shall you set by himself. Likewise, everyone that bows down upon his knees to drink. And the number of them that lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, were three hundred men. But all the rest of the people bowed down upon their knees to drink. And the Lord said unto Gideon, By the three hundred men that lapped will I save you, and deliver the Midianites into thine hand, and let all the other people go every man unto his place. So the people took victuals in their hand and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man unto his tent, and retained those three hundred men, and the host of Midian was beneath him in the valley. And it came to pass the same night that the Lord said unto him, Arise, get thee down unto the host, for I have delivered it into thine hand. But if thou fear to go down, go thou with Purah thy servant down to the host. And thou shalt hear what they say, and afterwards shall thy hands be strengthened to go down unto the host. Then went he down with Pura his servant unto the outside of the armed men that were in the host. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the children of the east lay along in the valley like grasshoppers for multitude. And their camels were without number as the sand by the seaside for multitude. And when Gideon was come, behold, there was a man that told a dream unto his fellow and said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and lo, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the host of Midian and came unto a tent, and smote it that it fell and overturned it, that the tent lay along. And his fellows answered and said, Well, this is nothing else save the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. For into his hand has God delivered Midian and all the host. And it was so when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and the interpretation thereof that he worshipped and returned into the host of Israel, and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered into your hand the host of Midian. And he divided the three hundred men into three companies, and he put a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pitchers and lamps within the pitchers. And he said unto them, Look on me, and do likewise. And behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, it shall be that as I do, so shall you do. And when I blow with the trumpet, and I and all that are with me, then blow ye the trumpets also on every side of all the camp, and say, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men that were with him came unto the outside of the camp in the beginning of the middle watch, and they had but newly set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and brake the pitchers that were in their hands. And the three companies blew the trumpets, 
and broke the pitchers and held the lamps in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands to blow withal. And they cried, The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And they stood every man in his place round about the camp and all the host ran and cried and fled. And the 300 blew the trumpets and the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow even throughout all the host. And the host fled to Beth Shittah and Sarah Rath and to the border of Abimahalah unto Tabath. And the men of Israel gathered themselves together out of Naphtali and out of Asher and out of Manasseh and pursued after the Midianites. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all Mount Ephraim saying, Come down against the Midianites and take before them the waters unto Bethbara in Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered themselves together and took the waters unto Bethbara in Jordan. And they took two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. And they slew Oreb upon the rock, Oreb and Zeb they slew at the winepress of Zeb, and pursued Midian, and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of Jordan. And let's pray. And Father, I'd ask that you'll speak to us today. I'd ask that we'll be encouraged in your word, Lord, and that you can show us, Lord, that you will take weakness, and out of that, Lord, you make your strength known. You form strength. You form people of courage. And I ask that you'll speak to all of our hearts here, Lord, and especially to those that are in trials, Lord, that need encouragement, that need to see that you will be with them and give them the courage and strength they need. And I pray that now in Jesus' name. This will be the third week we've been in Judges. We studied Judges 6 and now we're into Judges 7. And what is the foundational principle that God is trying to teach us, his people, through this story of Gideon and Israel. And I would say it's this, that God alone is wholly adequate, him alone is wholly adequate in, in all circumstances, and that we are wholly inadequate in ourselves. Or in other words, if we know that God is with us despite our weakness, we know Almighty God is with us, we can trust him in any circumstance and when the victory comes, all the glory will go to him. That's what we can know. And I'll tell you, in my opinion, the key to our entire walk with God is back in chapter 6, verse 12, if you would look at that. It's right there, Judges 6, 12. And it says, And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him, Gideon, and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And here's why I say it's the key. Because if we can know that God is with us and that he walks with us through this life, then we can face any trial, any problem, or any circumstance that come our way. Honestly, that should be the way if you're a Christian, if you can just know that God is with you. But here's the thing. We have to know, K-N-O-W, that God is with us. And Gideon struggled with that. That's what this is all about. And it took all of chapter 6 and part of chapter 7 to work this out in his life. To get this knowing that God is with me. I don't have to be afraid. He'll deliver us. And listen, we struggle with the same doubts and fears that God is with us. And so because of that, because we're not sure a lot of times, we find our security or we're tempted to find our security somewhere else. And so we tend to find our security in our job, our good health, and our wisdom that, hey, we could figure our own way out of this situation. But here, God says what? He says that our security as Christians, as his children, 
comes from having a relationship with him, the living God. So listen to Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man boast in his might, and let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him that boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. And so God says if we're going to boast about anything, trust in anything, we need to trust that we understand and know him. And that word know is the word for an intimate relationship between a man and wife. So that's more than just having this superficial relationship that we have with a lot of people, right? It says we have to know him in the sense we have experienced him. That's what we need to be able to boast in. Not our money, not our fame, not our strength. But if we've experienced him, his love, his justice, and his righteousness in a real way. <laughs> so listen, God is invisible spirit, isn't he? That's where the problem comes in, right? So we walk by faith, and we have to trust that he is ever-present with us. But I would say this, though. That doesn't mean that his presence can't be a tangible experience or certain knowledge. It can be, and it should be. Psalm 34, we sing the song, I will bless the Lord at all times, and his praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord, and the humble shall hear thereof and be glad. And the psalmist goes on to say, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusts in him. Taste and see. We can know that the Lord is with us. We can have that Emmaus Road experience where our hearts burn within us and we know his presence is with us as we walk down our Emmaus Road or the road of our trial or the journey of our life. And we need that. We can have that presence. And listen, when we walk with God, it will show in our lives and ministry and others will be able to tell. It will. So we have in Acts 4, Peter and John, they're brought before the high priest and the council. And it says this, it says Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and boldly began to proclaim salvation in the name of Jesus only. That's the only way he says we can be saved. And why have they brought them there? All this miracle's been done. And they're bringing him there and here he is boldly proclaiming salvation in the name of Jesus, putting scriptures together. And it says this of the religious leaders. We're saying when you walk with the Lord, people can tell. It shows. You can't hide it. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled. And they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Wow. So being with Jesus, walking with Jesus as Peter and John did, what did that do for them? It made them bold. They understood the word. Right, so much that it calls the experts of the Bible to marvel. And that word means they are astonished. They're watching these guys stand in front of them, these ignorant fishermen. These guys are fishermen. They got that northern accent, and it's, they're coming before this council. And it's like astonished, amazed is what the word means. They can't believe it. In other words, they couldn't believe it. But they make a connection, don't they? 
That's what it means when they took knowledge. They knew something that happened back there is causing this to be the case now. That relationship was there. And they're saying there's a reason. Look, there's a reason. We're seeing that. There's a reason for these miracles, this fearless speech that they have, and this ability, the same ability Jesus had to put these scriptures together to answer in a wisdom that they can't answer. Right? They were with someone. So I'm saying that is the key, to know that God is with us and to experience it. That is why they're different. That's the key to our Christian life. That we have to live a righteous life and walk with the Lord Jesus and know that God is with us. And the Lord told Gideon there, the Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. And the first part leads to the second part. It's not you're a mighty man of valor and so then God will be with you. No, when God is with you, Christian, it makes you a man or woman of valor. So when you know God's with you and you write with God, you're fearless. And that's what it says in Proverbs 28.1. It says, the wicked flee when no man pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. And I'll tell you what, when a person's got their conscience clear, they know they're walking with the Lord, and they get in the trial, God gives them a certain boldness that's there. And that's the change the Lord produced in Gideon. That's what we've seen here. He's gone from a fearful, timid soul into a mighty man of valor, someone who's bold as a lion. And I would say only God can produce that change, obviously. Wouldn't we say, oh, well, that's obvious. But only God can produce that change. We can't do it ourselves. We don't have it in ourselves. It's a work of the Spirit of God. Listen to this. Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. Right? It says this towards the end. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, and Samson. He names three of the judges there. And he goes on to say later, who through faith subdued kingdoms. And listen to this. Out of weakness were made strong. They waxed valiant and fight and turned to flight the armies of the aliens. And I want to latch on to that one point. It says, out of weakness were made strong, or this is the literal, Young's literal translation, they were made powerful out of weakness. And so that word made powerful is a passive verb. In other words, it's not saying they made themselves powerful. It's saying they were made by somebody outside of themselves powerful from their weakness. And who's that somebody outside of them that did that work? God, the Holy Spirit. And so something was done to Gideon. Have we not seen that? If you've been paying attention for the last few weeks, it was not something he did to himself. He was made strong, literally from weakness, out of, or literally the word is from weakness. So like I said, in other words, God took men, he's saying here, Gideon, Barak, and Samson, men who were weak, even Samson. And made them strong. How? By the power of the Holy Spirit through their faith or trust. To prove the point, you know, when Samson lost his anointing, he was like any other man. Now, you watch a movie, which I wouldn't waste my time watching Bible movies. They always have Samson as like this guy that looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I guarantee you he didn't look like that. He wasn't a bodybuilder. That's not what gave him his strength because he's doing a lot of reps. 
and crunches or whatever all people do. You can, I don't do too many of those, but that's what people do, right? But here's what I want to latch in on here. When Delilah finally seduces him, like that kind of woman can do, just keeps vexing him by pressing him, pressing him, pressing him. And he finally confesses. Here's what it says. It says, he told her all his heart and said unto her, there has not come a razor upon mine head. For I have been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. And he tells her, if I be shaven, then my strength will go from me. And I shall become weak. Ha! Huh. That's what he is in the natural. He's weak. And he says, and be like any other man. So without his hair, which represented God's anointing, Gideon, the supernatural man, was just like me and you, Mr. Rudy. Couldn't probably bench press 150 pounds if he tried. Right? He's nothing, in other words. And just a little side parentheses note, what is it that caused Samson to lose his anointing or God's presence? What was it that caused that to happen? Lust. His life of persistent sin. It took him away from God. And guess what? He didn't even know it. My wife and I have been talking. What is it? This is like a new modern thing here. You can be a Christian fornicator. You can be a Christian adulterer. You can be a Christian drug addict in America now because grace and love prevail. Oh, that's not Bible, though. And like we've said, God will deal with that. But Samson was the poster boy of supernatural strength, right? God's strength to overcome his enemies. But it wasn't natural to him is the point we're trying to make. God made him that way, right? It was maintained by a walk with God and God being with him. And so once Samson broke his vow, he lost the help of God. And then you go on and read, it wasn't a good life for Samson. Because after that, he's blinded and chained and it said he ground, and they're just mocking him. But God did grant him repentance. That's the good news for us, isn't it? And his hair began to grow, and he got vengeance on these people through the Lord. On the other side, I'm saying we should, though, be encouraged by these people we talked about in Hebrews 11 and the whole Bible. Because these people, Samson... Gideon, Barak, the ones that are mentioned, Abraham, Moses, they're not special people. And I'm saying, when I got in this faith walk, and I would hear people like Dr. Freeman, I'm like, man, I just wished I had that natural ability to trust God like he can. I'm thinking, it's a struggle for me. Well, listen, it's a struggle for everybody. God has to do a work. That's the way it is. People are not these, these men of faith we read about in Hebrews 11 and in the Bible. They're not naturally fearless, confident in God. God had to be patient with all of them. Read the life of Abraham, who is called the father of faith. He struggled just like we do, right? God had to do, and every person that comes into his kingdom that is his child, he has to do a complete home makeover, as the show goes. That's what he has to do, because nobody starts off as a mighty man of valor. God makes them that from weakness. Out of weakness, they were made strong. And Paul says this, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you and me. It's a work that has to begin. We don't start off the way we're going to be finished, and that includes in our faith and trust in God. He that has begun a good work in you will perform it or complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God will complete the work. 
Gideon's not totally passive, though, is he? He still had his part to play. We read about that when it came down to tearing those altars down. He had to repent. He did have to exercise faith and tear down those idols. And what motivated that, though? What was the motivation of that? I believe that was a healthy fear of God. So when Gideon encountered the living God, he feared for his life. He's seeing the holy God face to face. People didn't live. That's, that was the way they thought back then. You see God, the holy God, face to face and the way they knew they were. People don't live through that. And the Lord Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, had to speak to him to calm him down. He had to say, peace, you, you're not going to die. But I think that stayed with him in a good way and motivated him to obey, to tear down his father's idols. And listen, we sing the song, Jay likes to sing it, Amazing Grace. And what does that verse say? Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. And that's what will cause you to deal with your sin, the fear of God, and that is grace. And that same grace, once your heart is clean, will relieve you of your fears and give you an assurance because twas grace that taught my heart to fear. And it doesn't stop there, does it? And it says, twas grace my fears relieved. All right? That's the way it works. And listen, that's what we have. We didn't read this, but that's what we have at the end of chapter 6, verses 36 to 40, the story of the fleece. Everybody knows that. Gideon twice, it says he tests God. That's pretty bold. He tests God. And here's the thing. Everybody says, well, I'm going to set out a fleece to try to find God's will. Gideon was not trying to find God's will in that fleece. He already knew God's will. He just wanted an assurance we're back to this, that God was with him. Because look at verse 37, chapter 6, verse 37. Gideon says, Behold, I will put a fleece of wool in the floor, and if the dew be on the fleece only, and it be dry upon all the earth beside. What does he say? Then shall I know that thou wilt save Israel by mine hand as thou hast said. He knew God's will, but he's saying, Oh, if you do this, Lord, that's an impossible thing to happen. He says, if you do that, then I'll know that you're with me and that you will do what you said. That's what he's after. He's wanting to have that divine assurance, right? And God is so gracious. He graciously allows Gideon to test him, and then he supernaturally assures him. And so before we get too hard on old Gideon, think about it this way. Your little boy comes to you. I got an eight-year-old. He comes to you, and he's admitting he's afraid of something, and he's seeking assurance. Do you beat him and tell him he can't eat dinner because he's afraid? That's not the way you deal with things, is it? When, when your little child comes to you, you know, you take him to the amusement park, and there's a roller coaster ride. They don't want to get on there, and you'd say, look, it's going to be okay. Now, look at all these people. They're having fun. They're getting off of there. <laughs> you can see they're getting off and laughing. Nobody's dying, right? And they can see all that, but they're still afraid, even though they've got your word and they can see it right in front of them, and they need that assurance. So actually, I'm not talking about my eight-year-old. I'm talking about myself. <laughs> I get on those roller coasters to go up that hill, I realize what I've done to myself, and I'm like, Mama, <laughs> help me. That's the way it is, right? But what we have here is Gideon is just still not sure at this point in chapter 6. He's still not sure of the God of Israel. Because what have they been worshiping for seven years? Baal. And you know who Baal was? This might help explain why we have this thing with the dew. Baal was the god of the rain and the dew. 
He's the one that said rain for their crops. And Gideon's thinking, man, well, sometimes we pray to Baal and he'd send rain and do, and sometimes he wouldn't. He's just one of these gods that sometimes he's on, sometimes he's off. Is God like that? What am I getting that from? Look, Elijah in 1 Kings 17. You know what he did then? He says, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew or rain these years according to my words. He's saying that because the contest was about Baal, the God of dew or rain. And that's why Elijah says, there's not going to be dew or rain because we're going to show you God is superior to this God, Baal. And that's what happened. Baal couldn't produce dew or rain in Elijah's day. And only the living God could do the same for Gideon and proved he's truly the God over Baal. He is the Lord of Lords and can at his will have dew or rain be wherever he wants it to be. He's given him that assurance. So what is he getting? He's saying he's given Gideon that assurance that I will keep my word and I can do the impossible. And I can also control these Midianites that I'm sending you after, right? And that's the way God is. When that man with the epileptic boy, he's hearing that, hey, anybody with the demon, they get cast out. And then he brings them, and the disciples, Jesus is up on the mountain being transfigured, and down there the disciples, they can't do anything to help him out. And it's causing him to be like, man, I don't know that this always works. He's losing his confidence. And so when he cries to Jesus, if you can do anything, Jesus is like, if I can do anything, that's not the problem. If you can believe, and he wants to believe, like a lot of us do and sometimes struggle. And when he cries out, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief, which is what Gideon's doing. God doesn't rebuke that man, does he? He had to help him because only faith gives us answers. Needs, you have a need in here, God doesn't answer needs. He answers faith. Because if he answered needs, there wouldn't be a need in this world. Read your New Testament. It's got to be faith and trust in him. But he helped this man out, just like he helped out Gideon. And he'll help out you and I when we're in a trial and we're struggling. Because Gideon was going to need this help and assurance in the coming days. Look, back in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. It says, Then Jerubbabel who is Gideon and all the people that were with him rose up early and pitched beside the well of Herod. And that word means trembling, like in fear. It's funny that they pitched there. So that the host of the Midianites were on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. And the Lord said unto Gideon, The people that are with thee are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel bump themselves against me, saying, Mine hand has saved me. And look at that. What is wrong with this picture that we have right here in these first two verses? What is wrong with this picture? Mr. Rudy, I could probably have him stand up and tell us for a half an hour. This is not how you play the game of war, is it, Mr. Rudy? That's not how you do it. God's telling Gideon, you've got too many people. And you young guys that play that game risk, what's the object of that game? You want to get all the armies you can master the border and just overrun the other guy. That's how the game of war is played, right? And so God's telling him, man, you've got too many. And so too many, what are the odds to begin with? Look over in verse 12 in chapter 7. It says, in the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the children of the east lay along in the valley like grasshoppers or a locust swarm for multitude. And their camels were without number as the sand by the seaside for multitudes. Just look at it, it's this great swarm of locusts, this mass of people he's looking at down in this valley. 
And it says their camels are like the sand on the seashore at Destin. More than you could ever hope to count. More than you could ever number. My, my boy just, I guess they got camels down here at the zoo. Camels are large and imposing animals. And you think about that. You're looking at, here's this mass of people and hundreds and thousands of camels. Massive camels. It's intimidating. So Israel, I mean, they are outnumbered in every way. And I'm telling you, the math doesn't work. As it is with the 32,000, this is military suicide going against these people. And God says, oh, I want it reduced from where it is. And why is that? It's the story we've been looking at here in Judges, right? God insists on weakness before he acts. Before he will act. He insists on weakness. What does he say? Look what he says there in verse 2. He says, the people that are with you are too many for me to act. There are too many there for me to act. You want me to help you out? Got too many. He says, if you want me, emphasis on me, to deliver you, you're going to have to get rid of some of these people. Because why? He says, I know the pride of Israel. I know the way they are. They'll say they earned the victory. And look, he's just spent seven years getting them to the point where they could be delivered from their pride and independence of him. And they're crying out to him, and he doesn't want them falling right back into it. And we have to see that the purpose for Israel and all of us here is to depend on God entirely in our weakness, to recognize our need for his presence and power. Now, I just don't think everybody here cares that much about that. They're getting along fine without it. It's just not a pressing issue. Because if you bypass trials, if you're not wholly trusting the Lord, there's a lot of times you just don't need them. What for? But man, you're trusting the Lord wholly, acting to act your faith. Man, all this starts meaning something. Because you're totally dependent on Him and Him alone. And your ears perk up instead of going to sleep. That's the way it is. So listen, God can win victories through one man. He did that with Samson, didn't he? Defeated the Philistines with one man. Or he can use two men like Jonathan and his armor bearer. Or thousands. The judge before this, Barak and Deborah, 10,000 they used, right? But he's only going to win victories in a way that he will receive the glory. That's what he's going to do. He insists on weakness and dependence. That's what he is. And man is prone to pride and independence. And men... All of us, we want to boast in our spiritual accomplishments, don't we? We tend to want to do that. And we tend to puff up, especially in America. We're this culture that worships actors and stars, and we're a star-driven society with our politicians, with everyone. Like someone said, we don't really care so much what the facts are. Anymore. How do you move me, Mr. Politician? How do you make me feel? I'll vote for you. I like your looks. I like the way you talk. not really care about your substance. And that's the way we are. And we do that with ministries tend to puff them up and forget what they're all about. And so Paul had to deal with that in Corinth. Listen to what he wrote. He says, In these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. And he says, here's the reason why. For who makes you to differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive. Now, if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? 
And so he's saying there, why act like all this spiritual revelation, all this spiritual progress you made is something that you can boast about? Who's done the work? Who did this work in Gideon? Who did this work in Israel that brought them to this point with this great deliverance? Nothing they can boast of, and God's making sure of that, isn't he? I'm going to whittle you down to 300 people. Because, listen, spiritual pride is the worst form of pride there is. And so to be puffed up about spiritual gifts, your walk with God, or all that I've endured for God, it takes away from what? It takes away from God's glory. And that's not going to happen because that's what caused Herod to be eaten of worms in Acts 12. It says he came out in his robes, he sat on his throne, and delivered a speech that just put the people in awe. Wow! That's the voice of God. And that's what happened. The people gave a shout and they said, it's the voice of a God, not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him because he gave not God the glory. And he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. So that's something for all of us to listen to, isn't it? It's dangerous to take the glory because of something God has given you, right? Listen. I've never forgotten this story. I've got this book called Pioneers of Faith. It's about these guys that were the Pentecostal, Holy Ghost-filled people around the early 1900s, and they went out and did exploits everywhere. And there's a story in there. They're not all bad. They don't all end this way. But this story caught my attention. There were two brothers from Wales, and I believe this is right around the 1900s. They were coal miners. They're ignorant coal miners, kind of like the fishermen, Peter and John. And somehow God came on them and gave them a tremendous healing ministry. And they rented an auditorium there, and every night they said that auditorium would be filled to overflowing with the line stretching for miles to try to get in there because of the things that were taking place. And these brothers' names were Stephen and George Jeffries. And a man named Howard Carter, one of the leaders in the charismatic movement back then, he tells of a time when he was in that auditorium, and this young man came with one leg and it just dangled, he said, because it had never grown. And Stephen Jeffries put him up on the platform and said this simple prayer, leg, I tell you grow in Jesus' name. And there were thousands of people there to witnesses. And right in front of their very eyes, that leg grew out 18 inches and the boy walked. And Howard Carter said, I was conservative. Most of the people that were in that auditorium that lived in that area were conservative people. He said they went berserk at the sight of that miracle, which I probably would have too. And Stephen Jeffries went on because of everything that was taking place. He became rich and famous, right, in Wales because of this gift of healing and miracles that take place. But listen to this. The same man, Howard Carter, said he heard Jeffries stand before thousands of people in Africa and listen to what this man said, Stephen Jeffries, blessed by God. He said this to these people, ladies and gentlemen, the world is at my feet to worship me. And that was his downfall right there because it wasn't long after that. God's not going to let a man like that take the glory that belonged to him. And Stephen Jeffries had prayed for people that were crippled and legs and seen miraculous thing happen. And he's afflicted with rheumatoid arthritis for the rest of his life and died shortly after that. Because God is not going to allow a man to take the glory for him. 
And Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, he says, listen, I've received unspeakable revelations, unspeakable words. And he said, but only a fool would boast of receiving such abundance of revelation. That's what Paul says. Only a fool would boast about that. He says, lest any man should think of me, he goes, I'm not going to boast, lest any man should think of me above that which he sees me to be or that he hears of me. In fact, he goes on to say, hey, God did me a favor. He gave me this thorn in the flesh that I asked him to remove. And he said, uh-uh, I'm going to keep you weak, Paul. We've talked about that, haven't we? You need to be weak. That's God's grace. I'm not going to let you get puffed up. Because I want to be able to use you, and I insist on weakness in those that I use. And Paul says, well, then I'll boast in it. I'll boast in my glory. I'll boast in the fact I've been stoned, shipwrecked. My back is totally bloodied up and beaten, and I'm scarred for life. Who knows? And my speech is contemptible. He says, I'll boast in all of that stuff so that the power of God can rest on me. That's what I want. And I'm going to give all the glory to God. And that is the secret to being used by God, knowing your weakness and your inadequacy in and of yourself. And so God is going to give Gideon, he's given him this great assurance, and now he's going to bring him to a place of total dependence on him, that utter dependence and weakness. And listen, that is the best place to be. And so here, verse 3 shows us, chapter 7, verse 3, the process begins. He says in verse 3, Now therefore go to proclaiming the ears of the people, saying, Whosoever is fearful and afraid, let him return and depart early from Mount Gilead. And there returned of the people 22,000, and there remained 10,000. So the first reduction in getting that army down to where it needs to be is to send back the fearful. And that is not just to reduce the numbers, right, but also to protect the faith of those that are involved in this operation. You know why? Because fear is contagious. Remember back the 10 spies, they come back with fear in their hearts, right? And they're saying how great the grasshoppers and we'll be overcome by them. They'll eat us up. Filled the whole nation of Israel with fear and unbelief. And God had to judge them as a result of that, right? And when Jesus goes to raise Jairus' daughter, what did he do when he got in that room? They're mocking him. They're full of unbelief and fear puts them all out. says, I just want my disciples here and we'll let the parents stay. It's, you don't want to hang around people that are fearful and full of unbelief if you're in a trial. Get away from that talk. It's not going to help you. you. Really, we need to remember that. And so that whole thing of having the fearful go back is part of the law. Deuteronomy 20. In Deuteronomy 20, it gives four reasons that a man would not have to go to war and could return home. One is if he built a new house. God says, you build a new house and you die. Somebody else is going to live in your house. I'm going to give you a chance to live in it since you went to all the trouble of building it. The second one is the same type of thing. You plant a vineyard, you went to all that trouble, all that sweat and all that. He goes, you go on back home and you get a partake of that vineyard because if you die, someone else will. And God's nice in that way, right? And the other thing is you betrothed the wife because he says, you go to war, you got to have time with your wife. So he says, you can go back. You don't have to go to war. And the third reason was, if anyone was fearful and faint-hearted. And the reason is the reason I just said. It says this in Deuteronomy 28. Lest his brethren's heart faint as well as his heart. And so that's what happens here. Gideon is looking at the odds are not good to begin with. And all of a sudden, over two-thirds of his army is going back home because they are afraid. They don't want to trust the Lord. 22,000 people leaves. That leaves him with 10,000. That's how many Barak had before. I don't know if Gideon knew about that or not. 
But he had to be thinking to himself, all right, 10,000, that's got to be a reasonable amount in anybody's mind. Can I go now, Lord? The Lord says, no, uh-uh, that's still too many. What? Please, Lord, I promise you, we'll give you all the glory. <laughs> I promise. And the Lord says, bring the people down to the water, and I'll tell you which ones I'll keep. Oh, okay, Lord, whatever you say, I'm sure is what he said. And the Lord tells them the ones that kneel down and they just stick their head in the water and guzzle, they go home. But the ones that go down and bring the water to their mouth and lap like a dog, they stay. Now, you know, all the commentaries want to say that's the difference between someone that's carnal and somebody that's vigilant and all that. I don't know. It doesn't say that. You're kind of reading that into it. That may or may not be the case. I wouldn't argue over that. But I know this much. From verses 2 and 4, God's main purpose is what? He's wanting those numbers down down to where nobody's going to say we did it that's the whole point there isn't it no man's going to take credit for that victory and so they were reduced they're down to 300 men and look what it says in verse 8 so the people took victuals in their hand and their trumpets and he sent all the rest of israel every man unto his tent and look what it says at the end and he retained those 300 men and then here's the backdrop to 300 men and the host of midian was beneath him in the valley. Get that picture. Here's 300 men, and here is this vast multitude spread out. That's the picture that the Bible's painting for us here. And I'll tell you what. I think Gideon might have had a little bit of trouble sleeping that night. Like me or you would have, looking at that, right? He's probably pacing and praying, thinking about his odds. Man, this is impossible. 300 men. How am I going to fight this host? I don't even have a sword. We don't have a sword. All we have is trumpets. You know, bad music's going to kill him. He's got to be thinking that. And then his mind's probably going back the other way, and he's thinking about that fleece. He's like, well, 300 against this multitude is impossible, but what God did with that fleece, well, that was impossible too, and he did it. And man, I mean, you think a little bit further back than that, I did see a miracle. And fire came from that rock and consumed my sacrifice, and this angel that I've been talking to just disappeared. And I knew that it was God talking to me. And not only that, but man, here I tear down my dad's altar and I knew for sure the whole town was going to lynch me. That's what they were getting ready to do. And God delivered me. And not only that, he changed my dad. Now I know that's a miracle. And all the kids said, amen. And he's back to, but man, you know, 300 men with trumpets? What am I going to do, teach them to play taps? You know, that's what he's got to be thinking. And so what does God do? And we just keep seeing this time after time in this story, don't we? God in his grace comes to Gideon in the night and says this to him. He says, arise, get down into the host, for I have delivered it into thy hand. He gives him a command. But then he adds this, but, now I want you to go down there, Gideon. I'm giving you a command. He says, but if you fear to go down, isn't that what he tells him there? Look at that, verse 10. Verse 9, he says, Arise, get thee down into the host, for I have delivered it into thine hand. But if you fear to go down, what? Fear? Gideon? You've got to be kidding me. Gideon, be afraid? Well, he's constantly been fighting that, hasn't he? <laughs> and God knows it, doesn't he? And here's the thing. God didn't, he didn't have to ask for this sign, did he? God graciously came to him and helped him. And Gideon, he might have felt like, man, I've probably tested God all I can with all these signs I've been asking from him. But he's still, he's having to battle fear when he's looking down at this host. He's looking at this trial that he's facing. Impossible odds. He's having to fight that. 
camels stretched out as far as the eye could see. And all I can say to us in here is this, if you're facing a trial like that today, is God knows the fears of his servants. He does, and he's not unsympathetic. What does it say in Psalm 103? He knows our frame. So what does he do? He directs Gideon. He says, you go down to the camp of the Midianites, and I want you to do a little eavesdropping. This is one time it's permissible. Most of the time, I don't like eavesdroppers, but this is one time it's permissible. And what is he telling? Look in verse 11. He says, you do that, and you will be strengthened. God wants him to be strong in faith. Verse 11, you shall hear what they say, and afterwards shall thine hands be strengthened to go down unto the host. So let me just say this for the last time in this short little series here. What is a servant of Christ like? Dynamic, assured, confident, brash, fearless, witty, cool. Is that what a servant of Christ, and that's what a lot of times we think it is. And we have to remember I'm repeating it, so maybe it'll get in. God takes those that are weak, and from their weakness, he makes them strong. From their weakness, he makes them strong. And able to stand for him at home, at school, and at work. That's the way it works. And we may not like to admit it, but I'm saying we are a lot like Gideon. Constantly needing assurance from God. And I'll just tell you this. I could say for myself, if we all ever opened up our hearts and admitted to one another about the week we just had, our doubts, our fears, our struggles, and how we had to cry out to God and how he came and helped us, came to our rescue, we could probably encourage one another a lot more than we do. Because no one wants to put that face on, right? That's why I'm blessed by our sister's testimony. God came and helped me. We need to sometimes talk about that. And nobody wants to appear weak or make a bad confession. Well, no, we don't want to make bad confessions. But we can say, hey, I struggled and say, God did come and help me. Gave me assurance, brother. He'll do that for you. Because listen, even Paul had to have his heart encouraged. Luke wrote this in Acts 27. They're on that ship out there headed to Rome and they're prisoners. And Paul, they're in the midst of this terrible storm and Luke writes, it was impossible, it seemed, that they were going to survive. He wrote this, And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay on us, Luke wrote this, All hope that we should be saved was then taken away. And the next thing you read, though, is God sent Paul assurance, and he must have needed it. He must have needed it. The Apostle Paul, wow. Now, nobody's going to say he lacked in faith. But listen to what it says in Acts 27. Paul said this. He said, Sirs, you should have hearkened unto me and not have loosed from Crete and to have gained this harm and loss. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you but of the ship. And listen to this. He says, For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul. Paul had to get that word from an angel of God come to him in the midst of a trial, the Apostle Paul. Fear not, Paul, you must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God has given you all them that sail with you. And Paul said, Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. I would say this, if the Apostle Paul needed assurance like that, and Gideon, God had to give him more assurance after all the signs he's already been given. 
Can't we expect God to strengthen us and to give us assurance in our trials? I'm saying we can. That's the kind of God he is. And he'll do that. And how does he assure us? Well, I'd say, first of all, if you read your Bible regularly, if you're not, you're missing out on an opportunity for God to give you assurance. Because when you read that Bible and you see how he works in people's lives, and when you read those promises, when you read the Psalms, that's giving you assurance through his word. Faith comes by hearing the word. It's simple, but it's true. It's the way it works. And he also does it through other people. I mean, I can't tell you how many times when you have godly friends that are spiritually minded and you talk to them and you're just talking to them or they're just talking. They share things all the time. That happens to me all the time. Something spoken, God uses them to speak a word that encourages me or helps me along the way. That's the way God works. Not always talking about carnal things, right? Or it can be through messages like this one. So somebody's getting encouraged. Well, I remember one night, me and my wife were sitting there. She's going through and telling me, we're talking all night. She's telling me all these things she's struggling with. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. And we go hear a message the next day. I mean, every single thing was addressed just like it was tailor-made. She's the only person sitting there. And I'm like, man, that doesn't happen for me. Not like that. I mean, that ought to really encourage you. I mean, man, oh, man. But that does happen. Doesn't that happen to all of us at times? You come and you're going through. So that preacher doesn't know anything. And you think he's talking to you? Oh, no, I don't know. I don't have anything in mind. 99% of the time I'm up here. And so that's the way God works, doesn't it? And also through circumstances, like with Gideon, he's at the right place at the right time to hear the right word. And that's what happens. You know, God encourages us by having somebody give you money when you need it. Didn't tell anybody about it. Or they change their plans to help you in some way. Or he gives you a dream or just whatever. Supernatural assurance that God is with you and delivers you. And look, when he does that, what should our response be? Just ho-hum or not believe it? And there's some people, God sends them assurance and they won't even believe it. They'll still even doubt that. Well, look what Gideon's response was. Look down in verses 13 to 15. And when Gideon was come, behold, there was a man that told a dream unto his fellow and said, Behold, I dreamed a dream. And lo, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the host of Midian and came unto a tent and smote it that it fell and overturned it that the tent lay along. And his fellow answered and said, This is nothing else save the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. For into his hand has God delivered Midian and all the host. And look at verse 15. And it was so when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and the interpretation thereof, what did he do? He worshipped. Praise God. You love me that much. You gave me this assurance. And man, that changed him forever. And he returned unto the host of Israel and says, Hey, arise, for the Lord has delivered into your hand the host of Midian. And there we see the completion of God's work up to this point in Gideon. He's brought that Judges 6.12 to pass. Gideon is a changed man. He is now a mighty man of valor. You know why? Because we're going right back to where I started. He knows beyond a doubt in his mind that God is with him. And that's the key, I'm telling you. If you're not sure of that, it's going to make you unsure of everything. You've got to know that God is with you when you're facing trials. And he knows that now. He's transformed from a fearful man into a mighty man of valor, fully assured that God is with him. And you know what else? He's got a clear conscience. And now it's just like Proverbs 28.1 says, he is bold as a lion. He's a righteous man knowing God is with him, and he's bold of a lion. He takes charge. That's what we just read. 
Holy Spirit boldness. Look in verse 16. And he divides the 300 men into three companies and put a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pitchers and lamps within the pitchers. And he says to them, you look on me. Oh, Holy Ghost goes boldness now. Look on me and you do what I do. And behold, when I come to the outside of the camp, it shall be that as I do, so shall ye do. And when I blow with the trumpet, I and all that are with me, then blow ye the trumpets also on every side of the camp and say the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. No more of this fearful, timid soul, is it? Oh, no. God's with him. He knows it. He's righteous. And he is bold as a lion. And so like any leader, he's got a plan, one that is inspired by God and that God will work through. And so one thing he does, he divides his company of 300 into three companies of 100 and surrounds the Midianite camp. And that is a sort of a military maneuver that would be done. That's been done in the Civil War. Lee would divide his army up and split it into smaller groups. But that's where it ends right there. That's where the military aspect of this ends. Because the next thing they do, they blow trumpets, smash pitchers. And while hoarding torches, they're yelling at the top of their lungs, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And here's the irony of the whole thing. They're yelling. There is not a sword amongst them. They don't want a single sword, right? And the verbs that are used to describe in verse 21, the Midianites' reaction, they use three verbs. It says there, they ran, they cried, and they fled. Because look what's happening. These guys are, it's midnight. They're coming out of a deep sleep at midnight. Put yourself in their shoes. And all of a sudden, there's this magnified sound of trumpets blaring down into this valley. People are shouting. They're hearing jars smashing. And they're surrounded by 300 blazing torches. And you could say, well, man, that's just psychological warfare at its finest. You know, that's why it's worked. But is that what caused this outcome? Ain't no way, Jose. Look at verse 22. And it says, and the 300 blew the trumpets. And what does it say happened? And who did it? The Lord set every man's sword against his fellow, even throughout all the host. God did it. Only one source for the routing of the enemy. And he uses unlikely methods like this one. And he gets all the glory. Because no one's going to go up to Gideon and say, man, that was a brilliant strategy. Why didn't I think of that? Going to war with no weapons, making a lot of noise and bright lights, and then you just sit back and watch the enemy destroy itself. I mean, is that in the West Point manuals, Mr. Rudy? I don't think so, right? So listen, what are we seeing there? God always uses unlikely people and methods to display his glory, doesn't he? It's all through the Bible. I mean, where in the world? Anybody, you seen anybody lately spit and make mud and stick it in a blind person's eyes to give them sight? No, he, that's not the way you do things, right? Or have a virgin give birth to the Son of God in a manger? I'd say that's pretty unlikely, right? Or march around a city, the story we you know, for seven days in silence. Great walled city. And then at the last day, on the seventh day, you have the priest. Here's the trumpets blowing again. And the people giving a shout. And the walls fall flat. That's the way God works. Or 99-year-old women having babies. Try that one. And see if that works and on and on and why is that why does God work that way please turn to first Corinthians if you would first Corinthians 1 why is it that way first Corinthians 1 first Corinthians 1 beginning in verse 25 and here is why verse 25 because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men for you see your calling brethren how that not many wise men after the flesh 
Not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen, yea, and the things which are not to bring to naught the things that are. And here's our point today. Why does he do that? That no flesh should glory in his presence. That's why God demonstrates his power in situations and people that are weak and entirely dependent on his faithfulness. And their trust in his promises brings them blessings, but even more importantly, when you trust in his promises, it brings God glory. For it says all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us or through us. And so what do we have? That's the way God works in the Bible and down through the centuries. So he takes a man named Smith Wigglesworth, an uneducated plumber, and anoints him with the Holy Spirit to have a tremendous healing spirit. And you want to talk about somebody that felt weak and inadequate. You know what he did? He would haul people to the guy that was the healing evangelist, put him in carts, find sick people. Man, I know this guy that will heal you. I'll take you there. And he gets there one time, and the guy's not there. He said, I want you, told somebody to tell Wigglesworth, you pray for these people. Me? That's the way his reaction was. I, I can't do that. Well, he had to. And God blessed him. And you know what? I've got a book of his unedited sermons. You talk about using somebody that is a vessel of weakness and contempt. It's Smith Wigglesworth. Most of his sermons, they edit them, and they make them sound logical and reasonable. You read his unedited sermons. They are terrible. He couldn't talk at all. I'm not kidding you. But who gets the glory through a man like that? It's obvious it's God and the Spirit working through him. You know, and God calls a man to preach that can barely say two sentences without stuttering. And like Gideon, he tries to get out of his calling, but God wouldn't let him go. And what was his name? Tom Hamilton. Pastored here for 30 years. And if you ever listen to the early tapes, tons of stuttering. And you listen to the last 25 years, you would have never known that man stuttered. Talked perfectly. And what is that again? Out of weakness was made strong. He had to overcome that. And by his faith, God had, to, had a purpose for him, didn't it? And that's what he'll do for all of us. We think, who, me? And that's what Brother Hamilton thought. I think that's a tremendous testimony. i got to stand up in front of these people. I can't talk. It's embarrassing. He had to go through embarrassment. And man, God delivered him and blessed him. And so what about you and me? Here's the point. God doesn't care about our credentials. He doesn't. He's looking for those that feel like they have no might, no wisdom, nothing to offer God but what? There are hearts and lives, and he'll take weak people like that and give them the faith and assurance that he is with them. That's the key, and allow them to bring glory to him. He'll allow us to bring glory to him by trusting him, right? Trusting in his power in the circumstances of our lives. That's how we bring glory to him. So we like Gideon can know God's with us and has transformed us into mighty men and women of valor. So let me say, are you in a situation that's brought you and your strength to its lowest point? I've been there many times. And you feel like God's reduced you to nothing from 32,000 to 10,000 to 300 to a loaf of bread. That's what happened to Gideon. He got reduced to a loaf of barley bread. A loaf of barley bread, in case you don't know it, is totally worthless. It's good for nothing. 
It really is. That's the whole point. And yet that is what God used to bring deliverance to the nation. And if you're there, you're right where he wants you to be. Just make sure you've dealt with your idols. Can't bypass that. Because here's the thing. Let me close with this. God is looking down from heaven and he will come to your rescue because that is Psalm 33. Listen to this. The Lord looks from heaven and he beholds all the sons of men. From the place of his habitation, he looks upon all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts alike. He considers all their ways. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. So what's the answer? Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and shield for our heart rejoices in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your loving kindness, O Lord, be upon us according as we have hoped in you. And that, in a nutshell, is what we get from the story of Gideon. It's not going to be the army, not going to be the strength of the horse, but God has his eye and he will be with those that fear him to deliver them that trust and they understand he has a holy name. They have a relationship with him. So out of weakness, it says in Hebrews 11, out of or from weakness, they were made strong. God does the work and he alone gets the glory. He did it for Gideon. He did it for Paul, and I say he'll do it for you and me. He will. Do you believe that? Because it's true, because that is what God's word says. <laughs> and let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just ask that for everyone in here that's looking to trust you, Lord, that you've done a work in their heart and that are your children, that you'll show them that it's nothing within ourselves, Lord. It's everything that you will give us by the power of your spirit. And from our weakness, you will make us strong. You will do the work. And I ask that you'll encourage everyone's heart in here, especially those, Lord, that are facing severe trials, that you will be with them, that you will assure them, give them an assurance, and that you will be with them, even though they feel like nothing, Lord. But it is from that that your power will be demonstrated and that you alone will receive all the glory. I just ask that happens here in this church, Lord, that we can see manifestations of your power, not only for the lives that it would bless, Lord, but for the glory that it would bring your name and for what the Lord Jesus did on the cross, that he would receive the reward of his suffering. And I thank you that you'll make that real to all of us in here today, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.